listening to the Fish on Ted podcast with your host, Ted Johnson. Well, hello, this is Ted Johnson with the Fish on Ted podcast. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. If you look at your calendars, uh, this is April the 12th of 2021. Yes, we still have COVID, but by God, we're sure vaccinating a lot of people right now. And Hopefully this darn thing will be over and we can get back to a somewhat normal lifestyle. But uh, today we're not talking about COVID, we're talking about fishing. And we're talking about the, in a very unique subject about being comfortable crossing the bar and going you know, in, into the ocean and just learning more about what that take, what, the, uh, what it takes to do that. And I've got a very special guest that I've been excited to uh, have on the show for uh, the last week as we got acquainted. And without further ado, Charles, are you there? I am here, Ted, and thanks for having me. This is truly a pleasure. Oh, well, this, is, this will be fun. I'm looking forward to it, Charles. Charles, give us a little background about who you are and what you do and, and how in the world you got into this business. I teach small boat captains how to take their boats onto the ocean safely and to have fun doing so. And that involves here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, getting across the bar. It involves interpreting the various weather forecasts. And that core is really making that go or no go decision. Um, I also teach an intuitive form of navigation and I get people very comfortable with their VHF radio and we do some role play. Mm -hmm. And it's 100% customized to each individual. It's not a class, it's not a seminar, it's, it's uh, it's generally six one-hour sessions, and I meet people where they are in the knowledge base and, and fill in the gaps and, and get them up to ocean proficiency. Well, as in the title of the podcast, you're the ocean coach, right? That's right. That's right. Very My good. tagline is, uh, become the captain everyone trusts. Oh, I love it. I love it. So growing up as a, as, as a kid, did, did you grow up... Uh, um, on, on, on the ocean and fishing and that sort of thing? Yeah, and that's where I really learned the trade. I grew up in Southern California in Laguna Beach and uh -huh. uh, as a kid and through high school. And so I was in the water five days a week for 15 years straight. Holy and, moly. You know, I was tanned to the color of mahogany. And <laughs> um, Ted, I have been trounced by every different kind of wave in every different way possible. As a surfer, skimboarder, snorkeler, I always had a ratty little rowboat down on the beach, you know, for catching uh -huh. bass and barracuda. And so that's really where I, where I learned the ocean on a, on a gut level. Um, I kind of forgot what your original question was, but I hope I answered it. <laughs> no, you, you did. I mean, I, how did you get started in this? And, and that was, was the question. And it sounds like in, in uh, like, in many cases, you grew up with it. Did it did it take you long to get comfortable with the ocean? Well, no. I mean, I I have salt water in my veins, Ted. I mean, you know, back in high school, I'd be sitting around the dinner table, and all of a sudden, two ounces of salt water would drain out of my sinuses all over my plate. <laughs> really? And that's just what happens to surfers because when you go over the falls on a five foot wave, that water gets pounded into your sinuses, and it was just the way it was, you, you wouldn't believe the bone knots on my, the knuckles of my feet from wearing swim fins. They were massive. 
Uh-huh. And that's the way it was in a beach town. That's what you did. And so I, I lived it and breathed it and loved it and started fishing actually in a tide pool with a hand line. Really? Uh, seventh grade and watching fish eat bait. Um, it, was, it was fantastic. So, you know, that's where it, it w- went deep into my bones and deep into my soul really was those first years. Wow. Now, did you have a mentor growing up that uh, sort of showed you the ropes or were you kind of on your own? Isn't that funny? My dad doesn't give a rip about fishing. And um, he came from the Netherlands. And I have I've gone back there and found out that this ocean love skips generations. My dad didn't have it. His father was a submarine captain. Um, I love the ocean. My son doesn't care about it at all. So I've, I've kind of come up with this theory that it's 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 a latent passion for every other generation. Mm hmm. You know, it's funny you say that because my family is, is you know, very similar to that. My grandfather um, was a big influence in my life, as was my father. But uh, my grandfather and I always hunted and fished together. And my father is, uh, uh, you know, bless his heart, he turned 90 the other day. Uh, he uh, is more of an intellectual and enjoys, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. And he would fish and hunt and, and, and go along with us. But it really wasn't his passion, you know, and then uh, it became my passion and my son doesn't, the, you know, hunt or fish much. And there you so, go. Yeah. And, and my dad was a physicist and a math professor. And I'll tell you, I didn't have a mentor. I'm self-taught, but boy, did I have a fishing buddy back in high school. Good old Jeff. And we were viciously competitive. Um, I mean, you know, we, we had this little rowboat together and if, uh-huh. if he caught one more than I did or two more, that was okay. But if he was catching three or four more than me, it was war. And we were like steel, uh, you know, steel on a stone. We were sharpening each other, comp- you know, all the time. We just had uh-huh. the most brutal uh, competitions just every minute on that boat. And, and I really learned a lot because, you know, uh, that was a real crucible about what, what works and what doesn't. Sure. So how, how did you, and you're, you're based out of uh, Oregon. How did you get to Oregon from, from Southern California? Don't ever remodel a house and with the thought that you'll be there forever. Cause the minute I did that in Southern <laughs> California, I got a job opportunity in Portland and yeah, up and fell in love with it. And you know, that was 20, 20 some years ago, 25 years ago. Oh, wow. Did you drag a boat up or did you, get another boat while when you got to Oregon? I had my beloved 15 foot aluminum bay runner, which is oh, a wow. little bit like a Klamath with a 25 horse Evan route. And I yeah. ran that thing all over Southern California out to the Coronado Islands and all that and, and discovered pretty quickly <laughs> that was a, a little light of a boat for, for Oregon. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm gonna undermine my own credibility, but I did take it out of depot one day for tuna at the banana bank. Oh, you did? Oh, no yeah, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> did you have a crowd watching there on the bridge? No, I did it on the down low, but I was wearing a full wetsuit and I had all the gear and, you know, ah, okay. I'd waited two, okay. days for the, two years for the right day. So. <laughs> well, very good. So, so you, you moved up to Oregon and then uh, how, how did you become this coach? Um, did you have buddies that were calling you or 
how did how did that play into this? Yeah, like I say, I I was doing it informally in in beer pubs and coffee shops. People just asking me because I I love to do it, and I I seem to have a knack for for teaching and knowing what's important and what's not. And and it just uh-huh. and plus I've been doing seminars <clears throat> for ten years at the Saltwater Sportsman Show in Salem. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the boat shows up and down the valley and, and actually working with the Coast Guard and the Marine Board on that. So it was just a, kind of the light bulb going off. I'm doing this anyway. Maybe I can, you know, turn into a, a, a real service that, that can fill in. Right. Right. Well, gosh, it sounds like it's really taken off for you. That, that, that's great. So if somebody calls you up and, you know, and, and says, Charles, you know, I've I hear that you, you know, can give people more confidence when they cross the bar and, and help them understand the dynamics of, you know, uh, getting across it safely and getting back safely. Um, how do you how do you take that conversation? How do you take that person and turn them into a client? You know, I, I I'll send them some free stuff, uh, some free PDFs on on fishing and, and crossing the bar, and I'll ask just a few questions. Uh, about their background. And that's really just to, to know whether they need six sessions or four sessions or seven sessions or whatever. And then I'll give them a list of goals, of, of, of skills that they'll get in this program and, um, and leave it at that. You know, if, if that's of interest, uh, they'll come back. A lot of them do. And a lot mm-hmm. of them come back two, two years later, you know, it, it percolates and then they think about it. So I really give them I give them a list of this is what you'll be able to do when you're done. And my tagline is become the captain that everyone trusts. And I I found that that is such a good metric. If your friends trust you, if your wife trusts you, if nobody's worried about you back on shore when you're going out because you know your stuff, that's really the measure to me of a competent captain. Very good. Well, that, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, if if someone comes to you and says, you know, hey Charles, I, I just bought a you know a, a forty five foot you know uh, ocean boat and I want to go tuna fishing. I've never crossed the bar in my life. Um, where do you take that conversation? You know, um, I, I I usually I should have mentioned I usually send out a written proposal and it has all the stuff in it, so they actually uh, have gotcha. something to you know to show to their their spouse or whatever. Uh huh. Um, I try and figure out what it is they want to accomplish and what it is they're afraid of and, and, and approach it from that point of view and say, and say, this is what I think you should know. This is where I see you have some holes. This is what we would concentrate on. And here's a proposal with everything laid out. And, um, and I can get you there and I can give you references. We can talk on the phone, whatever. But um, yeah, I think a lot of what I do is knowing what people need to know, uh, like navigation. One of, the, one of the questions I love to ask, ask a new client is, do you know the latitude and longitude of where you are sitting right now or of any place on the Oregon coast? And most people will have no idea and at True. that point, I know, okay, they don't have that mariner's, that mental map of the coast with the, 
that beautiful 124 west line going straight down the coast, which is home. Mm -hmm. And I, I know then, okay, we need to work on navigation. And, and I'll tell them, we're, get, we're gonna get to the point where you will have a mental picture of where you are at all times without, oh, looking, at the, without looking at the chart plotter. Mm -hmm. So I kind of I kind of get them going that way. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a hard sell guy at all. And, you know, I, I, I nurture these relationships for two years before someone will come on board. And some people just say, this is the best thing I've ever heard of, you know, get your calendar out when do we start it's, it's uh -huh. all over the and place. and and all of this i mean or not all of it i would imagine but a, a good portion of this you were saying is, is kind of done on you know uh, in, in a classroom or a zoom setting or something like this it isn't necessarily that you're going out on it on a boat every time um you're you're working with somebody such a good question ted what i'm really doing is giving people the oceanography to be competent on the worldwide oceans. Okay, so mm -hmm. for example, tides, I'll have my clients go through a whole year's worth of tide charts and pick out the biggest, the days with the biggest tidal spans and the smallest tidal spans. And then I'll ask them to go look at how that correlates with the moon. And then I'll ask them to calculate the rate of the water is falling on a big ebb tide. And it's an astonishing number in inches per minute. You, you, you can hardly believe it. And then if it's a nice clear night and there's a full moon, I'll email them say, go out and look at the moon and go look at their tide chart. And, and so they'll get, a, they'll get a feeling for tides that, that most people uh, don't have. Mm -hmm. and, and the same with, uh, with, with swell and, and, and wind and swell period, which is so crucial. Um, so I'm, I'm really giving them um, tools and, and, and deep understanding that they can use to make their own go or no go decision. Mm -hmm. so, so what in, in regards to, you know, working with people on crossing the bar safety, safely and that sort of thing, are, are there, is there commonality between many people about, you know, what their, what their fears are or what they you know, uh, what they're concerned about most? Um, is, it, is it just that they feel overwhelmed or are there certain aspects of it that, that uh, they just don't understand? That breaks down into two categories. There are the people who have done it and had a bad experience and scared themselves. Uh -huh. um, and then there are people who have not done it that don't know what they don't know. Good point. Uh, Yes, crossing the bar is probably the biggest fear that people have. And they've heard the lingo. They've heard things like avoid an ebb current, and they scarcely know what an ebb current is. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll, they'll understand that there has something to do with swell. And then there's this whole mystique about the Coast Guard opening the bar or closing the bar and all of that. And what does that mean? And so I, I start with, in most cases, what is a bar and why is it dangerous? Let's just understand that. Mm -hmm. And I have some beautiful drone footage of a bar in very clear water and you can see that crescent of sand out beyond the jaws that makes the water shallow. And, and you know that's one thing is shallow water, the ebb current is the other, but the main thing is the ebb current fighting the incoming swell. Right. So, you know, there's a couple good sessions really, really unpacking that and then the very last session is always um, practicing go or no go decisions. After they've learned everything, 
I'll put up the weather forecast for the week and I'll on, on and, and you're right, this is all on Zoom due to COVID. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll put up the tide chart for the week and I'll put up some guidelines and I'll say, okay, you know, do you see a fishing day in this week? Do you see a go day? And if so, when would you launch? And when would you come back and why? And we, you know, that really, that really drives home that competence uh, because we've been working on that for six weeks and they've been doing homework on it and, and they feel pretty good after that. Mm -hmm. So when, when someone is returning from going out in the ocean, what are the things that people need to look at when they're going to come back across the bar and come back in? Is, is it a different set of, of, of information that they need to know? Well, you know, that's a great segue. I, I have a handout called Five Factors for, um, you know, five critical tide and weather factors. And if, if you hold your hand out with your fingers spread, that's your checklist. Okay. Every mariner needs to check off all five fingers. And the first finger is your thumb. That's the bar crossing outbound. The forefinger is the sea conditions once you're past the bar. And that's a totally different calculation. The bar might be flat, but you get out a mile, it's blowing 20 knots. Mm -hmm. the, the third finger is the bar crossing inbound. And that's a totally different calculation. The tide's totally different. The swell may be totally different. And then the next finger is visibility. People forget about the fog. You know, they study the weather forecasts and the tide and the swell and the wind and all that, but they forget the fog. And, and then the, the pinky right. finger. Yeah, the pinky is a really important one. And that is, what's the forecast trend? Um, I want my clients to know what the forecast says for three hours after they plan to be back or five hours after they plan to be back, or 10 hours after they plan to be back. And you, uh -huh. can, probably, you can probably guess why, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, be, be, you know, because the, you know, the, what the tides have changed and that sort of thing, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if a swell, big swell is supposed to come in at 8 p.m., don't be surprised if it comes in at 4 p.m., you know, well, these weather oh. systems can come in early. Right. Fishermen, you know, darn well, you may, planning to be home by three but you know the fishing's either good or bad or somebody's one fish from a limit right. you know right, right. we have red blood right. In our yeah. Friends, yeah. Right? <laughs> that's so true that's one more pass just one yeah. more pass yeah exactly or maybe you're coming in on a kicker or whatever and and that's mm -hmm. a that's a real important one i really drive that home because you know you don't want to go on that sucker window where you think oh the weather's turning to garbage by three but i'll be home by noon no you don't want to do that right right yeah it, 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 i i guess it comes down to what the, the uh, uh not having to make the you know i gotta do it now you know type decisions right you know every captain goes through a rite of passage and that's the time when you meet down at the ramp with your crew and some of that crew has flown in from kansas city just to go fishing with you or it's your boss, or it's your nephew, and you look at the, con the conditions and say, no, we're not going. And everybody's mm -hmm. whining. And, and actually, that's the moment where people really start to trust you. If, if you have the, the knowledge and the fortitude to say, you know what, what's really important to me is your safety and your comfort, and this isn't the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, uh, th that sure makes sense. I've uh, spent my share of time in Southeast Alaska 
fishing. And there have been days, you know, where uh, we meet on down at the dock at some lodge and the owner of the lodge or, you know, the, the uh, charter captain comes down and goes, you know, guys, I'm, I know you spent $2,000 for today, but uh, we're not going fishing. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, you just kind of sink. And, uh, but, you know, you do appreciate the decision that that guy had to make, you know? You know, because the alternatives go out there and scare people or maybe injure someone. I mean, if the deck is pitching and you can't stand up and you guys are lurching across the deck and you can't tie a knot and someone's, you know, bumps their head or it's just, it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. And my now, performance standard for my clients is I, I tell them you should never get stuck on a rough bar because the yeah. bar, bar conditions are driven by tide, which is 100% predictable and swell, which is fairly predictable. Mm -hmm. So you can really plan your way out of that situation. And, and it's a great fear. People think they're going to get locked out of the bar, but it's never happened to me. It's never happened to a lot of really good skippers. And that's, that's really the, you know, let's stay out of trouble in the first place. Right. So I, I'm just curious. I mean, your experience with, uh, you know, all up and down the West Coast and uh, now being in Oregon. And uh, it, I would imagine that you uh, go out of uh, Northwest Oregon uh, on, or Northwest coastline quite a bit. Is there, is there a lot of differences between the, the bars, let's say between, uh, uh, you know, there at, at Astoria and Hammond and maybe down towards, uh, you know, the, the Sayuswa uh, down in Eugene? I mean, if, if one's blown out, does it mean that they're all blown out? You know, they're all different. The Columbia River is in a class by itself. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, Tillamook is a, is a classic. It's a difficult bar. It has short little jetties and they don't dredge it. It's tough. Mm -hmm. And it has the classic shallows at the end uh, of the jaws that you'll see on an unimproved bar. Newport, on the other hand, has longer jetties and they dredge it. And so... It's a much, much easier bar to cross. Mm -hmm. The skill set is the same, but yeah, each bar has its own personality. And then there's lovely little Depot Bay, which <laughs> um, it's so small, there's no tidal current in and out of that. And right. I just love it when a, one of my clients will call me up and say, man, we're looking at a flat ocean and no wind and I want to go out of Newport, but the ebb tide is massive and I don't know what to do. Should I go out of depot? And at that point I do my happy dance because they realize that, yeah, you can go out of depot and you don't have to deal with, with, with the ebb. There's just not mm -hmm. enough water through there. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, I hope people play that games to going out of which port. Very good. So, so tell me about the Columbia. Well, in my seminars, I always have what I call an entertainment section. And that's where I show videos of bar crossings gone bad and boats flipping and all that. And, and I, I also do in coaching, teach some seamanship sh skills. You know, if you, if you do get caught in breaking waves, this is how you handle it. But um, all of that kind of goes, goes away on the Columbia because a couple of reasons. One, the bar crossing goes on for miles, whereas Tillamook, it's a couple hundred yards. And two, mm -hmm. the approach is from the southwest and then well, swells are from the northwest. So this idea of riding on the back of a swell doesn't work so well. Um, the ebb currents are massive. 
um, and then throw in all the heavy shipping. It's just a totally different, different animal. Mm -hmm. A lot yes. of, a lot of the tools you can use on other bars just don't work on the Columbia. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 just the amount of water that's coming down that thing is incredible at times, isn't it? Really is. It's daunting. Yeah. Now you have a passion for, for tuna fishing. Is that correct? I do. I do. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and you do a lot of tuna fishing off the Oregon coast? Yeah. I'm a dorryman. I launch out of Pacific city in my, uh, my flat bottom wooden dory right off the beach. And uh, no kidding. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I love the tuna. I mean, Tuna is such a social thing because Dorian, we run in packs, you know, we go tuna fishing two, three, four boats and we, we head out and we hunt together and, uh -huh. and they're, the radio chatter is great, but, oh man, you know, trolling along and, 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 and four rods go down and the reel starts screaming at the same time. It's just, it just doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now, what, what, uh, how far out do you typically go for tuna off of the Oregon coast? My boat is slow, flat bottom dory. It's a 14 knot boat in any kind of chop. So, mm -hmm. you know, a 35 miles is about my limit. Um, wow. I've, been, I've been out to the 125 line a few times, but I just don't have the speed, uh, you know, to go that far, which means right. dorymen are pretty good at finding the green water fish. You know, we do all right. Mm -hmm. Now in, in one of the white papers that you sent me, and, and by the way, your white papers are just absolutely amazing. And people can get those off of your website, or at least a few of them anyway. And But you talked in one of them about reading the water when you're tuna, fi tuna fishing. And, and, and a lot of fishermen are bypassing, you know, great opportunities just because they can't read the water. Um, what, what do you tell people when, you know, in, in the beginning about, you know, how they need to read the water if, if they're going out tuna fishing for, you know, their first time or their 10th time um, and, to, you know, to, to see more success. Well, let me do a sidebar on that first. And the sidebar, you can do yeah. a lot of planning on your computer beforehand and look at the, the satellite shots of surface water temperature and chlorophyll and chlorophyll being a proxy for water clarity. So before you go, you've done your work on the computer and you have a preliminary destination and that's where you're going to go. But, mm -hmm. but the white paper you're talking about is really about what kind of water are you looking for? And, and most people know you want blue water. Well, right. um, there's really three factors. There's water color and there's water clarity, two different things. Clarity meaning okay. clear like gin or cloudy like pond water. Mm -hmm. And then there's the particulates, those little sparkly things in the water are plankton. You don't want too many of those. Um, so I really, I really teach people looking at the water is, is, is something you have to pay attention to. And ideally, you stop the boat, you take off your sunglasses, and you, you look straight down, and you look three feet into the water. You don't, your instinct is to look at the surface, but you won't see everything if you look at the surface. You look three feet down, and you, you go through the checklist, color, clarity, particles, and... and uh, and then, of course, the ultimate thing is if you're catching tuna, take a minute and look at the water. That's tuna water by definition. Mm -hmm. and, and nobody, you know, it's hard to get people to do that because there's blood flowing and they're gaffing fish and all that. But um, there really is an art to it and it can put you on a whole lot of fish. Very good.
Very good. So we, we ask a question of most of our guests. And the, the, the people, of course, and, uh, that, that I speak with, just like yourself, have a real passion for, you know, for the water, for the ocean, for, for the fishing and that sort of thing. And if you woke up tomorrow morning, Charles, and, and you just had this weird dream and this inclination, you go, you know, I only get one more day on the ocean. The question is, if you knew that was true, where would you go? What would you do when you're out there, whether it's fishing or, or just trolling around? Um, or, and, and then who would you go with? Wow, what a great question. You know, it wouldn't be some trip of the lifetime in some tropical port for black marlin or something like that. I, I would have to go with my community. And yeah, it would be a, a dory trip and it would be me and three other dories launching at first light with all my buds on the other boats and, uh, and uh, all the radio chatter and all the, the community and uh, yeah, that's what it would be. It'd really be a farewell tour for my for my for my buddies more than anything else. That's a, that's Very a good question. That's a good question. Very good. You know, you've mentioned your dory a couple times now, and for those people in Oregon uh, that you know that the fish the Northwest waters, they're they're familiar with the dory fishing. But uh, our listeners back on the Great Lakes and and on the East Coast and wherever they are in this world. Uh, may not quite understand what you're talking about when you're talking about fishing out of dories off of the Oregon coast. Can, can, you, can you kind of paint a picture for us? Yes, we launch 22-foot flat-bottom outboard-powered boats directly through the surf and get out to the ocean that way. And in the, here in the Pacific Northwest, it's a nasty ocean, and uh, we're in the shelter of a headland, but it's you know, we're crossing breaking waves every day and it is more fun than you should be allowed to have because when you land a dory, you're hitting the beach at 15 knots and sliding, mm -hmm. you know, that the trick is to slide up right to that wet sand area where you can, you know, which will support your trailer when you shove it underneath. But, right. and it is such a community because we're 20 miles from either from, from harbors. So, you know, you, there's only dorymen out there in that area and nobody's going to come help you. So we rely on each other and, and the boats are hand built locally. Um, a lot of them are, you know, mine's 20 years old, made out of old growth fur. Uh, they're beautiful boats. It's just, it's just fantastic. And, 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 and everybody learns a bit of oceanography about how to cross that surf. I'll bet they do. You know, when I think about, uh, you know, landing a boat, uh, or, or at least the, the photos that I've seen of, you know, coming in off of breaking waves and that sort of thing. You know, it's usually in water that's uh, 70, 75 degrees. And uh, if you get wet, you'll just swim your way in. But that isn't the case where you're at, is it? No, I'm kind of an outlier. I wear a full wetsuit on a dory because I figure my boat's amphibious and I need to be as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, one thing we haven't touched on, I want to talk about my clients um, in a little different way. Most of my you clients bet. are now couples, families, or groups of friends. And I really encourage that, um, oh, especially, especially couples and families, because 
inevitably there's someone you know who, who's kind of the, the primary contact and, and if they drag their spouse or their son or daughter into it even somewhat reluctantly that each family member will, will end up being a full qualified captain. And I tell you, the discussions we have in coaching are so lively and they bounce off each other in homework and, and just the thrill of learning and, and, and um, the excitement. I, it's, it's just, it's, it's just, it's better. And it's, you know, it's cheaper per person too. If, if you can get a group of friends together or a family and. Right. Right. It's just the best. It's just the best. I'll be darned. So how many people, well, I, you know, you can stick as many as you want on Zoom, but, but what is the optimal amount of people that, you know, that can be involved in a group coaching call? I, I limit it at four, mm-hmm. you know, beyond that. And, and, you know, prior to COVID, I actually have an office downtown where I, I met people face to face and I'll probably phase that in as we get over this this pandemic, but I'll tell you, the Zoom works really, really well. It's really convenient, and you know, I, I use a lot of graphics and just screen share, and it it works great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zoom has sort of changed a lot of people's lives. They didn't realize that the, their their lives were going to get changed until this yep. COVID virus hit. You know, yep. but uh, it's amazing how you can do business when uh, your back's up against the wall sometimes, and, yep. and uh, uh, you know. Uh, you just adapt and, and go on. But, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and one more thing I want to mention is um, it, I, I really help people understand why they're out there. Cause I'll ask questions like, what do you do on the boat? Are you a de facto guide running the boat, rigging the gear and all that? Or do you find yourself mentoring people? And if so, do you want to have that role or not? And people really sit back and, and, and think, do I want to be, do I want to be out there fishing or do I want to be a guide or do I want to be a mentor? And, and they really come away with a lot more self-awareness of, of why they're out there. You know, you, you make a very good point because a lot of people in the, in the sports fishing and, and, and arena um, that you, that you talk to, they, they got to a point where when they became a guide or a charter captain is that, you know, they've caught all the fish they want. Right. And now they just want to, to, to share the experience. And that takes a very unique individual, um, you know, to, uh, to, to make that transition. But uh, gosh, you know, in, in, in the big scheme of things, and I've mentioned this in many different interviews, is that as a charter captain or as a fishing guide or someone that is providing an outdoor experience, um, you're doing a tremendous good out there. And, and, you know, in particular with what you're doing and, and working with people and, and, and sharing your passion for the ocean and, and, and providing them with a knowledge base that's going to keep them safe out there, but also enjoy it. You know, when someone's life is ending, they're not thinking about usually all the business deals that they've done or, you know, if they're an architect, the big buildings that they've designed and that sort of thing, they're thinking about that time that they went out tuna fishing, you know, with, with Charles and, uh, you know, just had the time of their life or, you know, they were out experiencing the ocean and, and just the grandness of it and, and possibly some of the wildlife, you know, that, that you see out there. And those are the things that you're creating. You're creating a lot of incredible memories for people that they cherish forever. And that's good work, in my opinion. Well, Ted, you're so right. And, and it is, 
a deeply emotional experience on the ocean. I, I had an experience, I had two friends on board coming in from tuna fishing and we encountered blue whales. Now we see a lot of humpbacks and grays out there, but blue, blue whales, really? oh my gosh, they're, they're just amazing. And we, we shut off the fish finder because it's only polite to do so. Uh, right. So here you and we had these blue whales screaming by us 30 feet away. Uh, and these things are racing along at 15 knots. And one of my friends was frightened and couldn't experience what was going on. The other one was near tears with just the magnificence of this experience. And the guy that was frightened, I, I have trouble maintaining that friendship. And the guy who got it, uh -huh. we're like blood brothers. It was like a totally defining event, you know, when you, when you, when you share an experience like that. It's just, just oh, yeah. You talk about what you remember on your deathbed. It's that kind of thing. Exactly, Ted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, interesting. I've never seen a blue whale. Holy smokes. That must have been incredible. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be darned. Well, very good. Well, Charles, I want to thank you so much, man, for what a, what a great conversation. I learned so much about uh, uh, the ocean and the bar. I didn't realize what I didn't know. You know, what is that Maslow's? theory of of uh, of knowledge and and going through what you don't know and uh, you've sort of uh, taken me to the next step in that and i i appreciate that but charles i'm sure we've got a lot of people that are interested in learning more about what you do and that sort of thing do you have some contact information like you'd like to share with us yeah the best way is through my website it's real easy theoceancoach.com uh -huh. And that has all my contact information. And uh, I also have a white paper on the five finger checklist and uh, the one we talked about how to read tuna water and some other things. So people can get a hold of me through theoceancoach.com. Very good. Well, thank you again, my friend. Safe travels, tight lines, and, and uh, we appreciate what you do. Thanks, Ted. This was really fun. Okay. Thanks again.